The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change. In other words, reinvent yourself and your company. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lynn. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the successful business leaders of today. Now, here is your host, Nancy Lynn. Hi, I'm Nancy Lynn. Welcome to Business Reinvention Show, where we bring you thought-provoking ideas from different industries so that you can connect the dots and stay innovative and competitive. Today, we're going to take a look at brain science and its impact on future marketing decisions. If you think you are a rational shopper and decision maker, today's show will probably change the way you look at yourself and, most importantly, your marketing strategy for your business. Neuromarketing is helping us to understand how our conscious and non-conscious minds work together and separately to achieve buying decisions. And many of the findings are counterintuitive. And that's what makes it so interesting and great learning. So prepare yourself for new insights and surprises. Joining me today to discuss neuromarketing are Steve Ginko and Andrew Pullman, the authors of the new book, Neuromarketing for Dummies. Steve and Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nancy. Wonderful. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that it was just fascinating to read your book. Um, There are a lot of scientific findings, and they really challenge the assumptions we have about how the brain works. Um, For example, brains are lazy and like things that are easy to process and look familiar for us. Um, And that may be surprising to my audience, um, who has been following new innovation on the show every week. And you would think that humans are active thinkers. But the findings sound um, sounds very much like the opposite. Are you saying that we make decisions without thinking about them? Steve, do you want to take uh, this one? Yes, uh, Nancy. That's, uh, that's one of the basic uh, themes uh, that we discovered in the science as we were, as we were writing our book. Um, of course, we are uh, consciously aware of the world around us all the time, but what's interesting is that at the same time, there's all these non-conscious processes going on um, that actually have a, play a very big role in how we, uh, how we make decisions and, and how we behave and how we uh, make judgments about the world around us. And so there's a number of shortcuts that are uh, commonly used by our human brains in consumer situations and other kinds of situations. And um, it's understanding these uh, and measuring them that's really the heart of what the neuromarketing is all about. Mm, so, okay, tell us about some of the shortcuts. Um, I guess familiarity is one of them. Um, what else? Well, the um, it, it starts from this idea that, uh, that, that we have these... Uh, conscious processes that we're aware of and then these underlying non-conscious processes. And uh, 
Um, these it, it's called a dual process model of the mind, and uh, one of the scholars who has most popularized this is is Daniel Kahneman, who won a uh, Nobel Economics Prize for his work. And Kahneman just called them System One and System Two. Always reminded me of Thing One and Thing Two in the in the Cat in the Hat. But um, he took a, the simplest uh, titles that he could uh, think of. System One is the intuitive non-conscious system, and System Two is the is the conscious. A deliberative system. That's the system we we are aware of when we're thinking. And um, what the science basically shows is that system one kind of gets there first. And if it's able to um, uh, figure out a situation and decide on an appropriate kind of behavior action to take, it will it will um, uh, kind of jump in and, and take over the the thinking. And system two only kind of interrupts system one. So. The idea of the lazy controller is that System 2 is a little lazy about interrupting System 1. It doesn't do it um, that often. And one of the really interesting questions is, is when does it, under what circumstances does it? Um, and the circumstances under which it doesn't are things like if things are very easy to process or if you feel that something is familiar or actually novelty detection is also something that has a lot of automatic processes underneath it. Um, then unless something happens to kind of alert you that something's going seriously wrong, you'll kind of go with the system one, um, and system two will never get engaged. Hmm. Okay, so one thing you mentioned um, is simplicity. Um, so that's really interesting because um, one thing I noticed is that, okay, I get a hard copy of Business Week every week, mm-hmm. and now they have changed their design. Instead of one article on each page like they used to, they now have multiple columns and sometimes big quotes cutting across the page. Mm-hmm. And I was guessing that they're assuming we're becoming multitaskers because of a technology, and that might have influenced um, the new design. Um, so I'm just curious with technology kind of changing our behavior and yet at the same time we have this really built-in structure in our brain. So, I mean, does it really work to have a new design like that or does simplicity, the old pattern, will still win? I mean, how, how do we make a judgment on that? So, Nancy, I think that, you know, part of the issue around simplicity is that it's not that we you know, are unable to adapt to something new. But I think what you've noticed is, you know, this whole notion of uh, novelty when something is new. As, as we're exposed to something new, in many cases, we uh, first thing uh, we do is perhaps even reject it. So, you know, you saw this new column structure, a little too complicated. You could almost liken it to perhaps even walking into a new grocery store and suddenly they moved um, your favorite location for potato chips, or they moved your favorite location for uh, where you buy your bread, um, it really jumps out and, um, and captures your attention. Um, and it's not to say that you dislike it in the very beginning, but because it's different, um, we first question it. Now, over time, you might get used to that new layout um, online, but I think what you also touched on was um, this, this concept of, of multitasking and um, you know, we as human beings still process information um, as simply as we can. Um, you know, too many choices, too many columns uh, becomes confusing for us, and in many cases we ignore all the information. So, um, I, you know, we, we like to see things um, in a predictable manner. Um, we also like to see things um, in the most simplistic format possible because, as uh, Steve mentioned, 
um, our brains are, are lazy in some sense, and we try to process things as easily as possible. And if, if something is easy to process, in many uh, cases, the way we describe that is things like um, likability, where we say we like something, perhaps to a lesser extent because we you know, actually have some deep emotional connection to it, but more so because it's just simply easy to process. Um, and so those are the kind of things when if somebody were to test that, um, that new um, uh, paper copy that came to you or a new website, um, neuromarketers would test that um, in many cases just to see how you like it, but it's probably that your uh, subconscious process is just easier for you to uh, decode and decrypt. Oh, that's very helpful. Um, so it sounds like we like things, I guess, um, easy to process, like you said, but yet ourselves are um, very complicated um, creatures, I would say, because novelty gets our attention, but we like things that are familiar, and that just sounds very contradictory. So does that mean you need to have something new and something old in an ad if you're trying to introduce a new idea? Yeah, that's uh, that's actually pretty much the gist of it, what... Um uh, kind of novelty and familiarity are kind of on a continuum. And when we first experience something new, it's it's very novel. And if it's something that's really unusual, it might actually be aversive to us because we we just have trouble making any sense of it at all. Um, and then things become uh, interesting as novel novelty brings interest, and we're kind of hardwired to identify things in our environment that are that are new and different because it helps us learn and it, it has a survival advantage for the old brain when we were uh, wandering around in the savannas and so on. Um, and then things move into familiarity, and, and we tend to make a lot of associations with familiarity. Um, and then ultimately, familiarity can turn into boredom if it's just too familiar. So what products really need to do is kind of find that sweet spot in between, um, uh, either within novelty and then kind of moving that to familiarity. And that's one of the real strengths of uh of leading brands, for example, is that they're so familiar to people. People feel so comfortable with them. Um, uh, and they have maybe habitual buying around them. That, that all adds up to make it very difficult to displace that brand with uh, as a new challenger comes up and wants to wants to attack it. So mm. um, uh, they're 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 kind of along. They're not not so much contradictory, but they are two very uh, different kinds of. Um, uh, aspects of things in our environment that draw our attention. Mm, so, 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 Nancy, there, therein lies part of the issue of new product testing as well. And, you know, Steve just noted as, you know, new products come out that perhaps we have never been exposed to before, our initial reaction might be to reject it uh, in some way. So if you think about products, um, you know, testing a cell phone or an MP3 player, you know, decades ago before someone was used to describing it, um, and then if you connect that back to the, the topic that uh, Steve described around System 1 and System 2, it's those um, non-conscious processes that in many cases um, help make our decision. Um, but when you ask a consumer, what do you think, what do you think of this product or what, do you, or what do you like about this product, it's very difficult for them to describe, or more importantly, very difficult for them to describe what they really think about a particular product, especially if it's new and novel. Mm. Right. And, so, and that, that balance of, uh, of uh, familiar and, and novel is really, the, uh, I think, the key to, to, to really successful uh, new products. I think one of the interesting things about, about the iPad, for example, when it came out, was it was this new form factor, um, but they incorporated the gesture 
uh, uh, way of navigating. So it kind of felt like if you were reading a book on, on an iPad, you could flip through the pages with the same kind of gesture that you flip through a paper magazine or a paper book. And so it, it oriented the novelty around some familiar functions, and I think that made it a lot easier for the product to be um, you know, successfully adopted by people. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's kind of alluding to the fact that uh, something you said in the book, too, that so the conscious mind is not optimized for decision-making, which really sounds a little bit shocking. But now yeah. you're explaining it. It sounds like the unconscious mind is making more of the decision. And so how does it do that? Well, um, a lot of the decisions that we make, we don't even um, we don't experience them as decisions. They just seem to be kind of like, you know, natural uh, one thing after another. Um, one of the big findings in uh, social psychology over the last 20, 25 years or so is the, is the idea that um, a lot of our moment-to-moment behaviors are, are kind of being monitored by, by our system one, by our non-conscious processes, and they kind of keep us on track um, for getting through whatever, whatever the thing that we're doing at the moment is. Um, and we really use our conscious uh, minds for two very different things. Um, and it makes sense if you think about it. One is that we're constantly kind of reviewing the past. We're thinking about what's happened before. We're drawing lessons. We're learning. We're, we're uh, relying on our memory to, to, uh, to, to uh, orient ourselves in the world. And the other thing our brains are always doing is they're always projecting the future. They're always kind of simulating what's going to happen next. Um, and that, of course, is on every possible time scale from you know, the next couple of seconds to, um, you know, for astronomers, the, the end of the universe. Uh, so so, really, so some, uh, some scientists say that, that the purpose of the conscious mind is time travel. We travel back in time. We travel forward in time. We're anticipating. We're planning. We're... Uh, having expectations, and we're, we're, we're thinking about how things in the moment relate to things that have happened in the past. That leaves the, the kind of moment-to-moment kind of behavioral guidance uh, largely uh, under the influence of the non-conscious, and that seems to be how it works. Mm, very intriguing. Um, well, it looks like it's time for us to take um, the first break, um, but we're going to come back in just a few minutes. And I also wanted to remind your audience that some of the podcasts from this program are now available for sale, and your contribution will help support the continued production of insightful discussion like the one we're having today. So please go to bizreinvention.com to make a contribution and find out more information about the show. We'll continue with the conversation after these messages. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. 
Social media is growing at an astounding rate. In just virtually five short years, we have seen YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter take the world by storm. How do you effectively make social media work for you? Tune in to The Social Universe with host Kurt Wilhelm. We'll show you how to market your business or yourself to get ahead, especially in unstable economic times. We'll also discuss practices that you can apply to increase visibility and revenue as you unlock the mysteries of the social universe. The Social Universe is broadcast live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. So, Steve, before the break, you were explaining to us that the conscious mind focuses on the past and future while the unconscious focuses on the present. So, if you are a marketer um, or you're a marketer and developing point-of-sale tactics, I would guess that you very much wanted to focus on non-conscious mind. Um, how do you do that? Right. Well, it's very interesting. You know, I think that... Um uh, I think one one way in which neuromarketers could could be a little uh, more effective in talking to marketers who are who are used to operating in the, the more traditional methodologies. Um, it is true that you need to understand the non-conscious, but often the first question for the marketer is, um, "Do I prefer my consumer to be processing this particular uh, uh, my advertising, my marketing, or my product?" Uh, at a conscious or at a non-conscious level. So sometimes you want your consumer to be um, processing your offer, say, in a, in a more conscious, deliberate way, and sometimes you want them to go with the flow. And um, that's a very important initial question. It's not all non-conscious. It's really the non-conscious and the conscious and, and how they work together. Um, if you do want to uh, keep a buying situation as, as natural and non-deliberative as possible, then you want to, uh, you want to present your, your product um, with uh, some strong emotional associations. Um, you want to uh, have a, um, a sense in which it is uh, a very easy to process um, and uh, you want your advertising to have kind of built a, a natural, uh, strong, um, emotional connection to the, to the brand or the product that will kind of get non-consciously activated when the person is, is making a decision. So um, those are some of the key ways that you, that you uh, facilitate a, uh, a sort of a, what's called an implicit decision or a, a decision that's largely driven by non-conscious processes. On the okay, other hand, so if, you, if, you want your, uh, if you want your customer to really think about uh, what you're, what you're uh, selling them, um, and that's often the case with uh, new products, for example. You, you, you need to kind of get their attention and explain to them uh, what this product does and why it's better and why they should consider it, why they should change their behavior um, and try out the new product. 
And for that, you may want to use some of the, uh, some techniques of, uh, of, of novelty and making it stand out that might at first make people a little uh, resistant, but it gets them to notice it, and then you try to carry them through with your messaging. Mm, so if you have an existing, existing product, um, are there other variables that will change how you determine the emphasis should be, the conscious or non-conscious? Um, well, it kind of depends on the relationship that the consumer has. Uh, and here it kind of gets into what are the characteristics of your, of your, uh, your target audience. Uh, who, are you, um, who are you selling to? Who, who are you trying to attract? And if you're trying to attract a, um, a kind of a loyal, um, stable uh, customer base, then you really want to uh, change as little as possible because, because a lot of those folks have already transitioned into kind of habitual buying, which is where they don't even think about it at all. They just grab it off the shelf and put it in the grocery cart. And as your example with your magazine, um, if you change anything about about your brand or your product or your package, that opens up the possibility for people to start thinking about, uh, why am I buying this thing? And then that opens up the possibility for uh, variety seeking, and they may start look, looking at other things. And that's the last thing you want to do. But if you're a new product, you want to do just the opposite. You want to cause that uh, variety seeking. You want to give people a reason to kind of come out of the fog and, and, uh, and start considering consciously these, these things as alternatives. Mm, very interesting. So now that we know that the unconscious mind um, is responsible for a big chunk of decisions we make, um, then I would think that means that, well, we need to measure our, I guess, um, advertising or marketing effectiveness differently. But how do you do that if it's unconscious and we don't know what's going on there? Um, Andrew, how do you go about doing that? So, you know, you're absolutely right that, you know, the domain of traditional market research and what I mean by that is, you know, primarily things like uh, surveys and focus groups has primarily relied on um, conscious responses to why someone, as you mentioned, you know, likes a particular ad, likes a particular product, um, and some messaging. And what we find is that the, the way someone responds to a survey or focus group is primarily using that, uh, that system, too, uh, that Steve talked about in terms of how I you know, process something, and system two being much more deliberate, much more effortful, versus system two, and especially on this uh, habitual buying, where someone is um, acting spontaneously or, or effortlessly. So, um, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, the way we look at this is not really an either-or, that someone only uses neuromarketing techniques or only uses uh, traditional techniques. Um, we like really combining the two, and in many cases, seeing how they compare against each other, how someone's non-conscious responses compare to their conscious responses. And and on the non-conscious side, you know, there are a variety of uh, techniques um, that range from, um, you know, actually measuring uh, brain waves using such techniques as EEG or fMRI. But you could even employ things like behavioral experiments, which really measure um, how someone makes um, a choice or even response time uh, techniques where the faster you implore someone to make a decision, the more likely you are uh, to understand what their real choice is versus asking them to stop, consider, and deliberate um, or really rationalize a purchase versus simply saying, make a choice. 
Um, and I think we, we get a lot closer to the truth in those types of um, experiments than we do by asking someone, what will you buy? And tell me why you're buying it. Um, because it's, it's often very difficult for people to describe their rationale in such a decision. Definitely. Um, so I guess what you are also implying is that emotion is a key component to decision making. And we tend to think that rational people are better decision makers. But now the scientists are telling us that emotion helps make good decision and patients with damaged emotional centers are able or not able to make decisions. Um, so can you give us some example of how that works? Yeah, so I think I mean I think the word better is always a uh, an interesting word in terms of what's you know what's a better decision an emotional decision or a you know a logical decision. I grew up in a German household, and of course you know logic rules everything. But I think as you noted, what we've come to learn is that um, developing an emotional connection um, with a product um, helps create uh, loyalty. Um, and the and the moment I begin to um, enter a considered purchase. Um, I start to engage a totally different part um, of the brain. But, you know, especially some of these um, habitual purchases that we make, um, long-term uh, branding, all need to be built a, um, an emotional connection with the consumer to, uh, to really make selling much more um, effective. Um, you know, it's not to say that the conscious mind does not make the decision, right? We, we have the ability to... Um, override that non-conscious and when it's a, a large purchase where we do need to uh, compare and contrast different options, we engage our conscious mind very, very well. Um, but, you know, uh, the caution is out there, though, that we will, um, in some cases, rationalize our way into a purchase um, if we're given too many options and, and need, to, need to make a choice. Mm. So let's talk about brand building for a little while because I think that's where um, it has to do with a lot of intangibles and emotional connection and where I think neuromarketing can be very, very helpful. Um, from your experience, um, how is neuromarketing changing the way um, branding campaigns are being developed? Um, can you give an example, maybe one or two of your clients actually changing their um, brand campaigns because of new marketing research technology available? Well, it, it's, it's interesting that, that traditional research, uh, survey research, um, where you ask people questions about the brand and they kind of give you their opinions, um, uh, often uh, will result in, um, uh, say, a creative agency that wants to, that wants to do something really creative with the brand. Um, that kind of research will identify resistance um, with that idea, um, and uh, and so as a result, creative agencies often kind of see research as as their enemy, uh, the the adversary that they have to fight across the table. Um, but interestingly, the the, the kind of neuro based uh, uh, testing, which tries to get in there sort of before that rational deliberation begins. Um, tends to actually be uh, more supportive of of creative ideas. So um, because you don't get all the filters and all of the uh, kind of the biases that that come with uh, deliberation. So um, you know we have seen that uh, uh, brands have been willing to try some new uh, uh, kinds of uh, kinds of branding that are less. Um, offer and uh, 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 kind of selling argument oriented. Um, 
traditional methods say, you know, the way you sell is you, you establish a, 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 a universal selling proposition that goes with your product and people understand that proposition factually and they, they're persuaded by it and then they remember it and they go out and buy stuff. Um, what this new science tells us is that the relationship that people have with brands actually more often than not bypasses all that and is, is more of a natural, um, uh, a natural kind of a emotional connection that people have trouble articulating even if they tried. So often doing things that appear to be um, almost nonsensical um, uh, in, in many ways can create a significant um, effect. Uh, so one example is, uh, which is not one of ours, but one of our uh, colleagues at, a, um, at another firm um, helped uh, a uh, cell phone company in England uh, radically changed their advertising, and they they started showing um, flash mobs. Are you familiar with the idea of a flash mob? Is where you know people are like milling around in a uh, uh, in a big public space, like a train station or something, and all of a sudden, like a hundred people break out into a spontaneous, synchronized, choreographed dance. Right. And then it's over, and then they just all walk off like nothing had happened. And uh, so the cell phone company filmed. Um, one of these one of these kinds of events, and they that was the ad. They just showed that, and then they said sponsored by them, and, and it doubled their market share, uh, and it was a, had a huge impact. And so it was just pure like uh, association of that brand. Well, cell phones have nothing to do with dancing; they have nothing to do with with kind of that general feeling of kind of spontaneous joy. But they made that connection, even though there's no logic to it. It had a, a, a radically positive effect on the. On the brand, so you're you're seeing more willingness to try uh, interesting and and kind of innovative and even off the wall um, associations. Um, and this kind of research can can kind of give brands permission to uh, do that because it sort of explains why it works. Well, and we have been Nancy. We've been, as you can probably guess, just been deluged with um, advertising, and you know as you know, as evidenced by DVRs and others, you know, we actively try to avoid um, advertising. Um, and so um, I think to be able to create these long-term emotional connections with uh, consumers, you know, focusing in on um, brand-building exercises are, are very, very positive and very, very effective um, because when we finally make a decision, we aren't easily persuaded by the buy me, buy me now um, advertisements. However, we are, um, as we continue to be exposed by great emotional brand building ads, um, we will be impacted by that when we're walking down the aisle, even though we might not be consciously aware of that. Mm, very interesting. Well, you're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. For more information about the show, follow me on Twitter at Business Reinvention or go to businessreinvention.com. We'll be back in two minutes. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Are the challenges of economic uncertainty and the pressures of global competition wreaking havoc on your company strategy? To succeed in today's fast-paced, high-tech business landscape, companies must continually adapt while driving innovation and exploiting new opportunities. Listen for Quantum Business Insights with host Olivia Parr-Rudd. Our guests will include thought leaders from around the world discussing and exploring the concepts that will move companies forward in these uncertain times. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Okay, I want to continue with the topic of testing for just a few more minutes. Um, so I guess one of the advantages of um, neural marketing is that it measures the emotional level so much better, but they also things like attention and memory that you want to measure as well. So if a consumer noticed your ad, liked it, but then forget about it afterwards, um, how should you tweak your strategy to address that? Sure. Um, well, the, the kind of one-sentence version of neural marketing metrics is that they're really focused on measuring signals signals that are produced by, by the body and by the brain um, rather than uh, listening to what people have to say about what's going on. Um, and, and both our bodies and, and our brains are um, very attuned to everything that's happening around us. Uh, we respond physically to uh, emotional situations, whether they're uh, positive or negative or whether they're highly, highly arousing or stimulating or... Um, very calming. Um, all of that gets registered in, in various kinds of signals that the, that the body produces. Your breathing, um, the amount of perspiration that you get on your fingers, um, what your eyes are doing, where you're looking, how fast your gaze is moving around. Um, all of these provide clues as to uh, how you're um, responding to the situation that you're in or the stimulus that you're looking at. And um, those are largely emotional responses, and so that's, that's how you pick up on the emotion. Um, attention is a very interesting phenomenon, actually, much, much more interesting than you would think, because it seems to be pretty obvious. But in fact, um, if you think about attention, you know that something must happen before you pay attention to something uh, in order to cause you to pay attention to it. And all of that, of course, is, is, is non-conscious. Um, and in some cases, you want 
people to pay attention, and in other cases, you really don't want a lot of attention. So one of the interesting counterintuitive aspects of advertising, um, especially advertising in a kind of passive medium like TV, is that it's often better that people don't pay attention to your ads, um, that they kind of uh, just let it kind of pour in, not really paying a lot of attention to it, and that actually helps build the kinds of associations that you're interested in more effectively than if people spend a lot of time really thinking about about your ad. Um, Is that because then you actively resisting the ad or the messages of the ad, or, or yes, if you or think if you think consciously about an ad, I mean most ads are pretty silly if you think about it, and um, and so therefore you don't really want people to think about it. Um, so you go, well, um, you know, that, that, that uh, soft drink looks like it would really be tasty and refreshing. Um, and, and those beautiful models playing beach volleyball in their bikinis are just having the best possible time. And if you think about that, you go, well, am I really going to buy a soft drink because models are playing volleyball on the beach? And, you know, probably not. Um, so you don't really want, you don't want to break the mood. Uh, by having people think, think too much about it. Now, in other contexts, this is one of the interesting ways that online is different from um, more passive media like, like watching movies and, and, uh, and TV. Um, when you're online, you're usually engaged in some kind of activity, and it's much more active. It's much more active experience. And so there, um, often you want your advertising to attract attention and to be aligned with everything else that's going on um, on the web page. And under those circumstances, advertising is much more uh, effective online. So uh, online and, and kind of uh, uh, TV um, are in some ways very different kinds of media. And so um, you're, you want your advertising to do different things. And so you measure different things and you try to optimize for different things. Okay, so online you want to be more attention driven. Um, but what if you have a TV commercial? It's subtle and clear, but not memorable. What can you do, like, to tweak that, or is that something you could actually pinpoint the point, the the problem for the marketers? Well, I think this this notion of not memorable. I think in um, almost everything that you you're exposed to, and you know, take a take a commercial that. Um, even as Steve mentioned, that you might not necessarily be paying attention to, you are still um, adding that to your memory and adding it to your uh, base of ex- uh, experiences. So where, you know, things become perhaps not uh, memorable is where it's very predictable. You know, the way uh, the storyline that Steve just rolled out is, you know, pretty predictable um, ad. Um, but to be able to add so much more um, more emotional connections ends up then, whether or not you're conscious of that, uh, becoming much more memorable. You see some of these great brand building ads or ads that flow naturally from the program into the break. Um, you know, you've probably noticed yourself watching a program and next thing you know, hey, I didn't even realize I was in this commercial break um, versus those where you see the commercial break, it jumps out at you, you you know realize that you're being sold to and suddenly you flip the channel or you go do something else. So I think the you know the more natural the transition is from the program into the ad, um, certainly, the more emotional uh, connection. There's been, you know, a number of ads. If you think about the, you know, the last Super Bowls, um, those ads that did it very well were those that created a, a great emotional connection, rather than those that were overtly selling. 
Got it. Thanks for that explanation. It's so counterintuitive. Like it took me a little while to understand um, what what Steve was trying to say, and so I get it now. Um, so the other thing Steve mentioned was the online um, marketing strategy, and so now let's talk about the other side of that, which is the retail industry, um, which is being hit really hard, or it's been challenged by e-commerce. So. How else can they leverage their stores to better take advantage of the physical stores? If unconscious mind is so important in terms of making uh, buying decisions. Right. Um, in shopping, uh, there are a number of things that uh, that can be done to um, make the shopping experience more positive and improve sales. Um, and... Uh, yeah, this is an area where uh, uh, another aspect of brain science, uh, behavioral economics, becomes very important because behavioral economics is about the kinds of, uh, of biases and shortcuts that we use um, when we're when we're making decisions. And it's been found that by presenting a product, um, by what the product is surrounded by, can often have a huge effect on. Uh, how many people buy that product? So that's that's a big part of of kind of understanding shopping is uh, the way in which the product is presented. What are the alternatives? How close are they to your product? How does the look of your product differ from uh, or be similar to the look of products around it on the shelf? Um, so that's a that's a huge area. There's a lot of research going on there. A lot of commercial companies uh, working with retailers in that area. Um, couple of other points with shopping. One is that you want to um, make sure that you don't overwhelm your shoppers with too much choice. Um, classic uh, experiment was done where they set up a, a, a little display table, and uh, for one group of shoppers, they had like 24 different kinds of jams, and you could taste all the jams and buy jam. On another table, for another set of shoppers, they had six jams, and what they found was that more people stopped when there were more jams. Um, but they actually bought much, much less um, because it was just—it was kind of overwhelming to choose uh, out, of, out of 24 as opposed to out of six. So, not overwhelming uh, the shopper with choice is very important. Another big thing is uh, make it easy to pay. So, we literally uh, create pain in our brains. The same centers that light up when when we have physical pain light up when we have to pay money for something. <laughs> so. so uh, um, that's an example of our brain sort of a, a, a adapting uh, uh, mechanisms from the past to, to deal with uh, things in the present. So uh, you want to kind of make uh, paying as easy as possible. So uh, this is one of the this is one of the reasons why credit cards are so successful and any kind of delayed payment plan um, or having uh, you know uh, coupons or special kinds of uh, frequent buyer cards and those sorts of things. Um, those really help with the uh, pain of paying. And finally, uh, shopping is really a multi-sensory experience, and you really want to have um, all of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the textures, everything all aligned um, in your retail environment. And, and that creates a much more reinforcing environment. And, and you're seeing this when you think of some of the the really, you know, top retailers. Um, you can see how they, they they utilize many of these techniques to uh, to both make shopping a more pleasant experience, keep shoppers in the store longer, and um, they end up buying more stuff. 
So these, the, you know, the, the line-busting techniques, Nancy, that I'm sure you've uh, experienced from time to time at, at retailers where you now have handheld uh, point-of-sale devices, you know, that one, you know, cuts down dramatically on the amount of, amount of frustration that someone has in line, um, makes the transaction much more simple, um, and that obviously equates to likability. But really what you're doing is you're, you know, taking advantage of um, the, how you're making it easier for the brain to process paying for that item, uh, making it easier for you to navigate um, the line, you know, where do I go, how long is this line going to take, when am I going to get home, um, all of those little things uh, make a huge difference, um, but at the same time, you know, if you look at, um, you know, limiting choice, uh, that conundrum that, that Steve brought up, makes it very hard for retailers that offer multiple products to decide, who am I going to put on the shelf, um, and who I decide goes front and center. Obviously, you want to offer a great variety, uh, but retailers, it would behoove retailers to actually limit the amount of choices. They could not sell more products um, rather than believing that um, a vast array of choices um, is better for the consumer. It's actually easier and more productive for a consumer to make a choice from a limited number of options, um, as the the jam example uh, shows. And that probably explains why Costco is doing well. Um, okay, but I'm always curious why Costco has the giant TV sets um, at the entrance. Like, you know, and whenever you go in, the first thing you see are the giant TV sets. But you will think that more people are more likely to buy smaller TVs because big ones are very expensive. And I was curious, what's the marketing strategy behind that? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very clever strategy, actually. Um, when you see all of those big, uh, expensive, uh, large-scale items as you come in the store, um, it, it basically primes you, and prime, priming is an important uh, kind of psychological mechanism in, in all of this. We could talk about it if you're interested, talk about that a little bit more. But, but basically what priming does is um, it, it, it kind of makes, um, it connects things in your mind. So... Uh, when you see all of those big expensive items and you you walk past them because you're not really in the market for a 65 inch TV today, um, you, it actually gives you uh, more of a sense of permission to buy uh, more smaller items um, because you've uh, engaged in, uh, in in a kind of a resistance of temptation, and you. You know, you can justify smaller purchases because you didn't you didn't buy one of those two thousand dollar TVs. So um, you know, a few extra um, items from the uh, you know from the uh, bakery are just fine, and uh, <laughs> so it kind of it, it kind of sets your mind up. Um, it puts you it gives you permission to shop. Yeah, um, it's it, all relative, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it's a great pricing strategy as well. And although, you know, can't necessarily speak for uh, Costco's pricing strategy, but starting with a higher number really sets a sets a benchmark. So, if you're passing something that's two thousand dollars now, a hundred dollars fi- seems far more reasonable for perhaps <laughs> that that impulse purchase that would be halfway through the store. Exactly. Definitely. That's that's a uh, that's one of those judgment heuristics uh, called anchoring, uh, which is used a lot in pricing, which is. Um, the first price that you see kind of creates an anchor, and then you evaluate other prices relative to that one. So if you want to sell a $30, bottle, uh, $30 bottle of wine, what you do is first show somebody a $130 bottle of wine. Oh, fascinating. And, and, and then now that $30, bottle, 
$30 bottle of wine looks really inexpensive. <laughs> and people are more and likely it, to buy it. And it works. <laughs> it does. Very interesting. It yeah. Yep. Okay, let's take another break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn, and we'll be back in two minutes. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24 7. It's in the home, it's on the go, it's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for the second stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. I'm speaking with Steve Jenko and Andrew Pullman, the authors of the new book, Neural Marketing for Dummies, which is now available on Amazon and also bookstores near you. Um, definitely check it out. It's got lots of information about new findings on how brain works. Um, well, okay, Steve, um, I have a couple more questions for you. And one thing I'm really curious about is that how is brain loyalty different from just you know habit like it's just an active habit or is there more to it uh, when we talked about brand loyalty yeah i think brand loyalty is is very different uh, very different than habit uh, although the the result may seem to be the same that people buy the same thing on a on a regular basis um but brand loyalty really is based on an emotional connection with the brand often because that brand is is, is somehow displaying Certain aspects of yourself that you want to that you want to project uh, in the world. So, uh, uh, also brand loyalty tends to be associated much more with advocacy, um, with uh, going on in uh, social media and engaging with brands. 
Um, so it's very much a relationship. Habitual buying is is more literally. It's like kind of classic stimulus response. It's uh, it's you 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 go to the. I don't know if you're a habitual toothpaste buyer, a particular brand. You go to the toothpaste shelf. You oh yeah, I need some toothpaste. You reach up, you grab it. It's in your shopping cart. You haven't thought anything about it, but you don't necessarily have a uh, a kind of a loyal. Um, uh, relationship with that brand, and and so uh, they they differ um, quite remarkably, actually, in, in terms of how people behave and how they feel. So, Andrew, what advice would you have for marketers who are thinking about leveraging neural marketing to develop their business strategies? What are the do's and don'ts? So, you know, first off, engage that conscious mind when you're making a decision on, you know, thinking about. Um, uh, looking at neuromarketing services, you know, first of all, there's a bunch of great resources out there from uh, for those that are in uh, market research are probably familiar with some of these um, advertising research foundation, SMR, um, a great relatively recent group called NMSBA. It's the you know Global Neuromarketing Association that are really putting together uh, standards and checklists, and we have one of our own in our in our book as well on and how to make smart decisions. You know, and the important thing to remember is. One size does not fit all. Um, there are a number of techniques. Uh, Steve noted some earlier in the conversation from um, those that are measuring things like um, eye activity, um, facial coding, uh, behavioral response times, and then also the things that are traditionally been viewed as neuromarketing, which are things like EEG or fMRI. Um, but it's obviously you know very important to understand what you're trying to study. Um, apply the right um, methodology to what you're looking for, and just you know start with something. Start with something simple. Sometimes the the simplest experiments um, can yield some uh, very interesting, especially some of those um, choice experiments or behavioral response time, very cost effective and can give you some great insights um, without having to go to some of the what we'll call that you know higher order methods, which most certainly are very effective, um, produce great insights. Uh, but also, you know, require a different uh, level of uh, budget or commitment. Um, and most importantly, you know, do your due diligence on uh, providers. You know, ask, ask for great references, um, understand how the technology works, uh, and look for transparency, not unlike what you would for any other type of market research that you engage in. And so it's easy to see how the findings from neuroscience can be very helpful to consumer goods companies. But if you are a B2B marketer, is this still relevant? You know, absolutely. I, you know, ultimately the, the interaction that um, individuals are, that you're having is with another human being. And their, their brain operates, if you're in a business, no different than when they're acting as a consumer. You know, yes, there's, you know, a number of different steps that would take place. There, you know, aren't a lot of... Uh, impulse purchases where someone might buy a um, a new payroll system or you know a new uh, new infrastructure for their IT department um, and there's the you know the whole procurement process but um, as I'm engaging with a um, a business buyer some of those same emotional connections that I'm building uh, some of the same uh, decision biases that people have. Um, apply when you're dealing with a business buyer as a uh, consumer buyer. So, you know, we like to look at it. It's a brain-to-brain interaction, not necessarily just a um, an interaction with an entity or a business. Well, thanks for that. And it looks like that's all the time we have. This has been so informative. Thank you for sharing the great insights with us. Thank you for well, having our, us. Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. And- 
And good luck with your book. And again, the name of the book is Neural Marketing for Dummies, available on Amazon and your local bookstores. I also want to thank the audience for tuning in today. You can find more information about today's show and other innovations on bizreinvention.com or just follow me on Twitter for more news. Thanks again and enjoy the rest of your week. We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll find the inspiration for change over the coming week. 